as you well know, Queen Elizabeth II was a remarkable woman, presiding as monarch of the United Kingdom for 70 years, dying at age 96 here on September 8th. God save the queen. Like, seriously, Jesus, have mercy on and please save Queen Elizabeth. Now, much more could be said about her reign and her relevance in the UK, but both her royal rule and her death uh, brings up a very relevant question that we bring to our text today, and that is, what is eternal life? When does it begin? So that's kind of a pop quiz for you. What would you say? What is eternal life? Um, and when does eternal life begin? You know, eternal life translates uh, a Greek phrase, obviously, um, but, but we see it most notably in John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus himself says this, this is eternal life, or the life of the age, the, the life of God's new age. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the true God, says Jesus in a prayer to the Father, and Jesus the Messiah, whom you have sent. And when does it begin? If eternal life is to know God and Jesus the Messiah, sent by God, uh, when does it begin? Well, it begins when Christ begins to rule and starts to put everything under his feet. Well, when, when did that happen? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 23-25, Paul says, in speaking of the resurrection of Jesus bodily, it says um, it started with Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Uh, the resurrection will happen there. Then it says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There's a sense that eternal life starts, the new age begins when Christ is on the throne. As Tom Wright puts it, when the Messiah takes his seat, exalted over the world, then the age to come will truly have begun. This coming age which the Jewish prophets longed for which Jewish sages taught would appear at the end of the present age. We've got the age, but then we've got the age to come. It would be a time of new life, life with a new quality, not just a quantity going on forever and ever. It would be, in our inadequate phrase, eternal life. He goes on to say, this eternal life, this life of the coming age, is not something just that, that people can have after their death. It isn't simply that in some future state the world will go on forever and ever and we shall be a part of it. The point is, rather, that this new sort of life has come to birth in the world, in and through Jesus. Once he's completed the final victory over death itself, all his followers, all who trust him and believe that he has truly come from the Father and has truly unveiled the Father's character and purpose, all of them can and will possess eternal life right here and now. So what I'd like to show you today is that Christ 
is seated on the throne, right? The work that Jesus needed to accomplish on earth has been finished. The ruling has begun. So he's seated on the throne and then he's standing next to us. In this sense, the work has just begun to put everything under his feet. Here's our passage, Acts 22, verse 30. I'm going to read portions of it, and then um, I'm going to just kind of interrupt it with some uh, description and exposition, and we'll come to our conclusions at the end. This passage is from last week, but just to give context, it says, On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, the tribune Claudius Lysias unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul and set him down before them. Now our passage, Acts 23, 1-11. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Okay, so pause here. That is kind of an amazing statement. Can, can you say that? Right? It, this can't mean I've never done anything wrong. Right? It, what it means is whenever I've done anything wrong, I have worked immediately to put it to right. Does that make sense? Remember, he, he thought, Paul thought he was serving God while he was killing Christians. And then he served God by repenting and spreading the news that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord. He says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That's an amazing thing to say. But really, it's, it's that he's, when he's noted the mistakes, he's set them right. This is actually the way to live. Here's a principle I think you can try out. Following Jesus isn't about never making a mistake. It's always about making things right. It's not, it's not about never making a mistake. It's always about making things right. And the first pesky pastor question I have for us is, do you try to cover your mistakes and then overperform in other areas? Or is that just me? This is a, that's a serious confession and something I'm trying to make right as a new pattern in my life. Do you just cover over your mistakes and try to perform in other areas? When Paul had said this about his clean conscience, it says, the next verse says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said, God is going to strike you. You whitewashed wall, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? <laughs> Some fire there. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's priest, his high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. We see Paul respecting the office, even though he clearly does not respect the man. A lesson we could learn as well. Respect the office, whether or not you can respect the person sitting in that chair. Now, a whitewashed wall could have serious defects and could be ready to topple. But 
appearances say, well, it looks strong and, and beautiful. You whitewashed wall. Uh, pesky pastor question. How many of us look to be upright and polished when we're unstable and pretending? We look upright and polished. Ooh, tight, straight, tie is all straight, dress is clean, look at you, ready for Sunday. You look to be upright and polished when you're unstable and pretending. It's a tough question. Now, Paul, when he made this accusation of this person, couldn't have been more accurate if he had actually known the high priest personally. F.F. Bruce reports on the type of person Ananias was known to be. Are you ready for this? It's, it's extensive, but just think about this. This is the high priest, the one who, who runs the temple and all of its processes. right? Part, the leader of the Sanhedrin, the, the council. F.F. Bruce says this. The high priest at this time was Ananias, son of Nedabaius, who received the office from Herod of Chalcis, who's a younger brother of Herod Agrippa I, in A.D. 47. So he, he gets an office from the king. Doesn't God appoint the high priest? Okay, well. And he held it for 11 or 12 years. He says in his English way, he brought no credit to the sacred office. Josephus tells how his servants went to the threshing floors to seize the tithes that ought to have gone to the common priests. While the Talmud preserves a parody of Psalm 24-7. These are Jewish writings in which his greed was lampooned. So Psalm 24-7, you could look that up if you want. Here's the lampooned version. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, that Yohanan ben Narbai, that's Ananias, the disciple of Pinquai, may go in and fill his belly with the divine sacrifices. <laughs> He's well known as a greedy man. Some five years before this time, he had been sent to Rome by the legate from Syria because he was suspected of being complicit in a bloody conflict between the Judeans and the Samaritans. But he was cleared and restored by, to the high priesthood by the emperor Claudius. Uh, the younger Agrippa was his advocate there. His great wealth made him a man to be reckoned with even after his deposition from office. And he did not scruple to use violence and assassination to further his interests. Bruce is still continuing here. His pro-Roman policy, however, made him an object of intense hostility to the militant nationalists that we've been talking about in Judea. And when the war against Rome broke out in AD 66, just 10 years further on, he was dragged by insurgents from an aqueduct in which he had tried to hide, and he was put to death along with his brother Hezekiah. His son Eleazar, captain of the temple, took fierce reprisals on his assassins. Ananias was a whitewashed wall indeed. And if you know much about the biblical story, the priesthood always had trouble from the very start, maintaining their own purity and righteousness. And this era of temple, priest, and sacrifice that we find Jesus and, and Paul in was no exception. In our passage to verse 6, it says, Now when Paul perceived that one part of the council were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead 
that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Ephesus says that Paul and the Pharisees agreed that the ancestral hope of Israel was bound up with the resurrection of the dead. What will God do? How will he restore Israel? Well, we wait to the end when he will do this great thing. He says Paul and the other Pharisees who believed in Jesus went further and maintained that the hope of Israel was fulfilled in one who less than 30 years previously had been raised from the dead. Right? But this belief in the particular resurrection of Christ was, in Paul's mind, all of a piece with the general resurrection of the dead. The, the resurrection had begun. Interesting. The other day, Heather and I spent some time with Max, our Marine, at uh, Ivers on the dock at Coulon Park. And I'd seen some ducks paddling under the graded deck surface. And so when I was finished with my fries, I dropped a few through the grate and surprised Heather with uh, splashing and noise. What was that? What was that? It didn't take much to get them quacking at each other and gave us a few more minutes of enjoyment. It seems that Paul, like this, as he looked up at the council, checked out the who was there, knew exactly what would push their buttons and cause a squabble. He was a prophet and a provocateur, which is kind of the same thing, isn't it? Yeah. It says here in our, in our passage, there a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood up and contended sharply. Hey, we find nothing wrong with this man. What, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And Tom Wright notes that the, the two options the Pharisees prefer is to talk of an angelic existence and someone's spirit being alive, awaiting the resurrection. So the angelic experience, like, like we recall in, maybe in chapter 12, when, when Peter was thought to be dead, but he's at the gate, and, oh, maybe it's just his angel, that sort of thing. Like, okay, we're interacting with somebody here on earth, but it's not really them, it's their, their angel. Or to talk of someone's spirit being alive, awaiting the resurrection, right? So they're in that... Uh, the realm of, of the dead, but, but their spirit is there alive. He goes on, So since they certainly won't agree that Jesus has already been raised bodily from the dead, they're prepared to allow that maybe the person whom Paul met on the road to Damascus was, was the angel or the spirit of this person, Jesus, still alive and awaiting the resurrection, along with everyone else on that last day. And if this is what Paul is standing up for, well, they're prepared to line up and support him. If he's just talking about, you know, a spirit told him this or a spirit told him that, that, that should be fine. But Paul's claim, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15, is that Jesus rose bodily and that he is on the throne. That history has shifted. The new age has begun. And most of the Pharisees, although there were some believers, would not support him there. So do you support Paul in that? 
Let me read that passage in full, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28. Tell me if you think you believe it. <clears throat> now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Whom he didn't raise if it's true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. You, you catching that? It's, they're, they're one of the same. The resurrection and Christ's resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. That's it. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits, that's a harvest term, the, the first bit of the crop that says, oh, this is going to be a good crop, right? Oh, the apple tastes so sweet. He's the first, the down payment. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Why is Jesus waiting? He's waiting until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That means Jesus is taking his proper place under the Father, delivering the kingdom, ruling with us, so that God, the Father, is in all. So why is the bodily resurrection of Jesus such a big deal to believe? Why can't we just affirm that you know, Jesus rose from the dead in the hearts of his followers. Or that the spirit of Jesus is alive with God, the Father, awaiting resurrection. That's actually what they believed about the Caesars, that they'd flown off to heaven awaiting some other fate in, a, in another form, a spirit, or as an eagle, they would say. Just Jesus is alive, you know, just kind of awaiting the resurrection. But why can't we affirm that the best we can hope for is that when I die, hallelujah by and by, I'll fly away to glory as a spiritual being forever in a spiritual existence called heaven. Well, don't get me wrong. It would be fine to understand that, that song and that mindset as a temporary state of the believers you know, to be at Jesus's side in 
in their spiritual form without their bodies. But, but then we are awaiting the resurrection and new creation. In fact, we get a glimpse of this in Revelation. The, the saints gathered around the throne. How long till we get our bodies back? The earth in Romans chapter 8 is groaning. How long until we get made new? We are earthlings. We are. We belong in our bodies. That's why Jesus came and took on a body. He's committed to the human project here on earth. The, the temporary state of life after life needs a resurrection so that we can walk and talk and run and play and work in the new Garden of Eden city here on planet earth, reborn. That's the resurrection. When all things are made new, look at Revelation 20 and 21. So how did this resurrection talk work? Well, it says, And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So that didn't really work for Claudius Lysias, did it? To find out why the crowd was upset with Paul. I put him in there, he gets a couple lines off, and there's already a fight. So he brings him into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood by him. What? The following night, Jesus stands by Paul and says, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, the resurrection of the dead, so you must also testify in Rome. <laughs> testify in Rome, the heart of the empire, that Jesus is seated on the throne. Testify in Rome that Jesus is on the throne. That'll be controversial in the extreme, won't it? I mentioned to you at the beginning that I wanted to convince you of two things, that, that Jesus Christ is seated on the throne, that the, the work has been finished, the ruling has begun, but also that he's standing next to us, that the work has just begun to put everything under his feet. And, and the real takeaway today is to then practice the real presence of Jesus. Now, this is not make-believe, but it does start with belief. All that we've just talked about, that Jesus is alive, that he is ruling, he is reigning, he's on the throne, he's in this other dimension, that his presence is among us. But this isn't conjuring a genie to do your bidding. Okay, Jesus, if you're really here, well, then, then show me. I don't think he's going to do your bidding, right? No. This is putting your worldview to work and engaging in kingdom work, under the authority of the king. The king who says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The, the life of God's new age has broken into the present age and is filling it out. It's overlapping. It's coming to completion. And he's partnering with us to accomplish it. Can I say that again? Because this is a belief issue. Do you believe that the life of God's new age has broken into the present age? Heaven and earth have started to overlap in Jesus and is coming to completion 
till everything is put under his feet. And he's partnering with us to accomplish it. Well, what do we pray in the Our Father prayer? Well, may his kingdom come. Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This overlap of kingdoms. And here's something that, that we know, I, I think, is that the God of all comfort meets us to comfort us when, though? When we're uncomfortable. Jesus never promised to meet you on your recliner sofa in the midst of binge-watching a TV show. He, he, didn't, he just didn't say, I'll be there for you. You're already comfortable, right? But if you want to knock down the gates of Hades and rescue the lost and dying, you'll see he's right there with you. Because you are participating in his work. Does that make sense? Like, where is Jesus? Oh, where is he? Oh, he's over there doing his work. What if I get involved in it? Not, not a huge mystery, right? So I don't know if you know this about me. I've led dozens of mission trips with hundreds of people under my care. It's actually one of my favorite things to do because that's how you make missional disciples. You do that on mission, right? Uh, the responses to the trips are predictable. And near the top of the list is the desire to get back. I want to get back to that location to see God at work again. And it, it really is something to be on mission in Mexico, to see people responding to Christ in Costa Rica, or following Jesus in Fort Jones, California. But if we could just get back there, then we'd experience Christ's presence. What a mystery, what a mystery. Hmm. So what I'll do is I'll take them through the same process, and I'll take you through it too, to unpack the mystery. I'll ask questions like, so what did you do to prepare for this trip? Oh, well, there was daily Bible study and prayer. Um, ask God to fill me with his spirit. I prayed for the city we were going to be in. Um, I asked God to open my heart to the, to the new people um, and anticipated God's work among them. Um, there was connection with other Christ followers, and, and uh, including a mentor. And then I'll ask him something like, well, then what happened on the trip? Well, there was more prayer and Bible study and moment-by-moment moment obedience to Jesus in serving and loving people. And there was discomfort that made us rely on Jesus. And voila, Jesus showed up, right? Was that terribly mysterious? <laughs> Paul would say that's the normal Christian life, or that's practicing the presence of Jesus, or that's walking in his steps. Those also happen to be suggested titles of books for you to read and, and reflect upon. See, Jesus is the intersection of heaven and earth. He's the God-man. And we're called to stand with him right there at the dangerous intersection between heaven and earth in this age, this eternal life. One day we will all be made new. All things will be made new, and evil will be quarantined, and will rule and reign with him in the complete overlap of dimensions, heaven on earth. Okay? Now, in the everyday stuff of life, we experience, like I said, Jesus on mission. How mysterious is that? But also every time Jesus' followers get together to invoke his name. It happens when we read the stories of the Gospels. 
when we break bread and pour wine in his name. Because these are the moments that he's promised to be with us. Also, as we looked at last week in Matthew 25, we know that whenever we minister to and care for those who are in need, the sick, lonely, friendly, homeless, imprisoned, hungry, helpless, those without clothes, then we do it. And as much as we do it to the least of these, we do it for him. Right? When did we meet you? Oh, when we met you there. Oh, when did we do this? Oh, when we met you there. This is how heaven and earth meet. And this is just the beginning of eternal life.